Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. And I'm sorry it's taken so long to get this out. Um, there's no real decent excuse for it. It was very busy uh, towards the end of last year and then over Christmas. Um, so there's a few podcasts, political and sporting ones, that will be released in the next few days. Uh, and this was one that, um, well, I'm always excited, but particularly excited about uh, with Michael Portillo, Conservative legend. Um, and obviously I've had plenty of time to reflect on this since. Um, but I think what really strikes me, and see if you take this from it, is how... Um, Gently is, but how ruthless his political brain is. Um, that's what I really took from this, is that he's got a, a very um, genial, very likeable um, manner and is a, is a true gentleman and is, a, you know, is, a, is now, I think it's fair to say, a, a gentle soul, but he's still got that ruthless political brain on positioning, on messaging, on, uh, frankly, just a, a pragmatic politics rather than always been ideological I'd say but see what you take from it he was brilliant and apologies it's taken so long good evening good evening hello all right hello welcome hello what a special night we've got in store uh give me a cheer if you've been here before Yay! excellent oh mate you're back the Tory table the Tories are back in like the suit taking it back tomorrow why does it not suit me just cycling now I'm just but bu- you're back it's the Northern Tory, everyone. Yay! Amazing. You haven't been back since Alistair Campbell, I think I'm right in saying. Um, was anyone else here for the Alistair Campbell night? Yes. Um, it, well, it was you, wasn't it? Who Alistair Campbell called a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, if Portillo does it, it's going to be... It's going to be out of the... I might brief him at half-time. You've got to call one person a wanker and I'm not telling you who it is. <laughs> Is that why you haven't been back? Because it's taken this long to get over it? No, no, no. I was on my yacht. Thank you. I was on my yacht. <laughs> I think Campbell had you right, mate. <laughs> wow, where was the yacht then? Um, the, Car- the Caribbean. I almost said Caribbean, and that's the Mike Reed influence. The Caribbean. With me, your kit buddies. In Europe, but don't tell you. It was in Europe, but don't... In Europe, but not run by Europe. Uh, the famous phrase. Their conference, I don't know if anyone saw any footage, because conference season is over now. The UKIP conference, I have to say, looked like the most fun. They had it at a race course in Doncaster. That's how little they give a shit about politics. They're just like, you know what, we'll just have a stag do and talk about politics a bit. <laughs> Mark Reckless was there. I don't know if you saw Mark Reckless, the second defection to UKIP. I've never seen a backbencher revel in the smallest amount of limelight as Mark Reckless did. 
You see, when he came on stage to announce that he was leaving the Conservative Party, he comes and he goes, Friends, I want to announce that I'm leaving the Conservative Party and I'm joining UKIP. And they'll go, Hey! And if you saw it on TV, they'll start going, UKIP, 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 UKIP. Like the whole hall chanting it. I've never seen that at any British <laughs> political party conference. I've never, because it was actually quite a poignant moment. He looked quite emotional. He said, I'm leaving the Conservative Party. It wasn't Willie Make. Um, and I'm joining you, Kit. It's, like, it's actually quite, he looked quite sad about it. And they're all just there going, ooh, ooh, ooh. But you can't start chanting at poignant political times. Like a lot of moments in our history would have been ruined. You know, she was. <laughs> The people's princess, and that's how she will remain in our hearts and our thoughts forever. Tony! Tony! Hey! That's right, you tell him, Tony. Hey! Oh. So it ruins the effect of it, doesn't it? I mean, you keep it a race course. That must have been, there must have been so much temptation to go, okay, it's casual homophobia and sexism, bring out the that. Oh, economic policy's fallen at the first hurdle, and it's xenophobia by ahead at the end. And sadly, Bongo Bongo was injured and ironically will be sent back home. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Farage is, I mean, Farage is Teflon. People said that Blair was Teflon. Farage, I've never seen a politician be able to wriggle out of any crisis by just joking about it, admitting it, and then daring, at the end, once he's got your confidence, to joke about it again. <laughs> that is, any time Farage is caught, this is his uh, recipe. Gag, fake sincerity, Fuck it, I'll end on another gag. <laughs> and he could get caught doing anything, and I swear to God it would work. So, uh, sorry, Mr. Uh, Mr. Farage, uh, there are allegations this weekend that you were caught having sex with a cow. Well, look, I mean, I often get taught, I often get accused of talking a load of bull. This is the first time I found myself inside one. <laughs> no, but seriously, I've apologised to the cow in question. It was a massive lapse of judgement. But in all seriousness, you get more sense out of Daisy here than Ed Balls. <laughs> Shit. He's done it. That's basically his formula. He gets away with it every time. You could say to Nigel, you were caught drink driving at the weekend. This is serious. Well, look, frankly, if you'd had to sit through Mr. Barroso's speech for five hours, you'd have had a couple of glasses of Van Rouge. I mean, look, I've, I've apologised. It's serious. It was a big lapse of judgement. Uh, and apart from the five Belgians that perished, no one was injured. <laughs> well, frankly, if you've ever driven in Belgium, you'll know that even after a couple of bottles of red wine, you still, still drive better than they do. <laughs> Sort of stuff he come out. And I just wonder with Farage, because he's actually, I like him, uh, and that's a, that's a flaw on my part. Um, <laughs> but I'm actually quite fond of him, and he just think a lot of people really don't. You know, there's a real visceral anger against Farage. But the thing is, whenever politicians have been around long enough, they end up broadly being liked. And you think, I wonder if Farage, because I always think of him, the way he talks definitely suits his politics. You don't hear many people who sound like this, saying left-wing stuff. You can't imagine Nigel Farage ever mellowing on a chat show and going, look, frankly, we are not recycling enough. And those, those poor seals are choking because we're throwing our cigarette packets down the toilet. Someone needs to do something about it. And frankly, while I'm on the subject, what right have I got to judge two men who want to be in a loving relationship, particularly if they're French? <laughs> what the fuck has happened to Nigel Farage? Makes you wonder, did it? Because with some people, they mellow in old age and they become quite liberal. Uh, and other people drift right. I thought, Tony Benn... Lived to be a ripe old age, didn't he? So I can't believe he didn't drift right a little bit. I'd loved it if he'd have become a really right-wing shitbag in his final years. 
Imagine being on a chat show. Uh, Tony, um, of course, immigration, a big debate. Oh, yes, a massive debate. You know, you know, frankly, I wouldn't want to live next door to one. No, 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 you can always tell they're up to something. You can see it in their eyes, they're sneaky. <laughs> Fucking hell. What's happened to Tony Benn? Uh, one of the biggest, sadly, um, one of the biggest sort of political personalities of the time is Russell Brand. Um, <laughs> has anyone bought his book? Yeah. You bought it? Is it any good? Ironically, it's just a rambling sort of rambling. Yeah, yeah. that's his final argument, isn't it? I think. <laughs> Absolutely, it's. Cr- like, I don't think people have realised how surreal this whole Russell Brand thing is. I don't know if anyone saw the Newsnight interview with Evan Davis. But that guy is allergic to being asked questions. If you're going to write a book, even if you are a comic and you're going to write a book about a revolution, you should be expected to be able to answer like, the most basic questions. And Evan Davis is trying to ask him questions. And he won't let him. He's going, oh, come on, Evan, you went to Oxbridge. And trying to stop him. You're like, you can't... Like, if he's ever interviewed by the police, which I, I, I wager is a possibility. <laughs> For the benefit of the tape, I'm uh, PC Smith. This is uh, PC... Uh, Clock. Uh, Russell Brand, can you please uh, confirm that you are indeed Russell Brand of 2 uh, Main Road, Camden? Names, I believe, are a nom de plume given to us by, by an anarchist capitalist who, who do totally disagree with your William view that we are tacitly complicit in our, in our greater conscience and at the end of the day we need to uh, augment ourselves beyond this capitalist construct. <laughs> And he's got the thing, what I, did, what I find tricky about Russell Brand is he's got two personas and I don't like this. On, on one hand, he's the erudite wordsmith. When he's, when he's pontificating, he sounds amazing. The moment he's asked a question, he turns into Dickensian orphan. <laughs> go, we need a new collective conscious to solve the world's crises. You go, wow, Russell, how do we do it? Oh, don't ask me, mate, not in these old tunes. <laughs> <laughs> have it both ways, can you? That, that attitude would have ruined some of the greatest speeches in history. I have a dream! But you don't want to hear about it from a little old guy like me now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still don't think, like, as a public, we've grasped quite how surreal this situation is, where Russell Brand, a man primarily famous for being quite funny and shagging a lot of women, is now entering the political sphere like any other comedian. Can you imagine if ten years ago, Joe Pasquale wrote a book about economics? <laughs> I just think it's supply-side answers, to be honest. I think the minimum wages are in the labour market. Imagine if the Chuckle Brothers started getting involved. We just care about our community. Politics means a great deal to people round here. It means a lot to you, to me, to you, to me. Because <laughs> this is the danger. Well, this is the danger. When people perceive that there aren't enough um, personalities in politics, they look elsewhere. And actually, at a time... The last few years, we've got more personalities than we've ever had in politics now. In, in, certainly in the last ten years. It's bursting with it. Like, whatever you think of Boris Johnson... Oh. <laughs> not too much, by the sounds of things. What do you think of him? He's a big personality, isn't he? He's another one who's so good at deflecting questions. He obviously wants to be Prime Minister. And how he gets out of answering these questions... And what's amazing is, if you look at polling, Boris Johnson often tops polls on straight talking. People say, you know Boris, man of the people. Tells it like it is. <laughs> I can't believe he's managed to get himself into a situation. What he does is, if he's asked a direct question he doesn't like, he'll flatter his audience, and then he'll speak Latin. (laughs) 
So, uh, Boris, come on, just admit it in front of us here at the St James's Theatre. You want to be Prime Minister, don't you? Oh, no, no, let me just say, let me just firstly, look, uh, great to be here in this cradle, this crucible of culture, you know, remarkable learned friend. Uh, you know, he reminds me very much of a phrase my father used to use, you know, in divitas uh, divitum uh, rectum. <laughs> Straight talking if you speak Latin. <laughs> it was Greek he spoke, but a bit of Latin as well. <laughs> yeah, but he does. He, he speaks. He does speak Greek. I wasn't saying that he, he only can speak Latin. That speech I just quoted was made up by me, and that wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. The... <laughs> yeah. That wasn't one. I, it was just the the idea that your ears had pricked up and wrecked them and gone. I've heard that speech. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll find it was in Greek and it was online. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I do a mixture of Farage, Boris? Boris and Brand, yeah. all yeah. running for mayor of London. Uh, Boris. They should. Do. Right. Can I just make it clear to start this gig? This gig is not a democracy. <laughs> Right. I'm a big fan of politics to an extent. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have got a very, very, as you know, very, very special guest in the second half. Um, I think we've got a slightly longer break, so Michael's going to be here at... Michael, like I know him. Um, Mr Paul Tillow's going to be here uh, at, uh, at nine. Uh, so they've started doing beers. They've started doing draft beer now at the bar. <laughs> no good to you. No, no, no. If it ain't a good pee now, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what? Merlot? Merso? I've never heard... White Burgundy? Right, I've got no idea what's going on now. Uh, so, I'll tell you what, we'll have one more round of wine bingo and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've been Matt Ford. See you in the second half. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, hello, and welcome uh, to the uh, to the second half. Uh, I'm sorry we uh, kept you waiting, uh, but it's uh, worth it. And um, we've had some uh, wonderful guests uh, here at uh, the political party, including Anster Campbell, Jack Straw, people who've held high office, people who've been defining uh, characters in their era. And I think tonight's guest is arguably one of the, well, definitely, uh, one of the most significant figures in British political life in, in my lifetime, and I think will be studied for years and years to come. Uh, uh, just a phenomenal individual whose reputation, I think it's fair to say, has changed over the years, and it'll be fascinating to talk to him about his incredible career, and uh, that wasn't meant to be funny. Um, and as always, I'll open the floor up to, uh, to questions uh, later on in the show. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive welcome for the legend, Mr. Michael Portillo. You often get whooped on stage? It was a very nice reception. I, I've been doing women's institutes recently, so um, <laughs> I, I have had a little bit of whooping uh, recently. <laughs> I had someone faint yesterday, although I think it was the, I think it was the heat. It was very hot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to start um, by, by addressing some of the, the topical issues before we, we sort of delve into your, your career in history. And just the, the amount of influence that UKIP seemed to be having 
uh, on the mainstream parties, and particularly on the Conservative Party. Now, to, in my mind, the Conservative Party is one of the greatest political parties in the history of Europe, and yet it seems like its leader is being bullied by a glorified pressure group that until a fortnight ago didn't have a single MP. Um, how should David Cameron react to the, the so-called rise of UKIP? Differently from the way that he's reacted so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I agree entirely with the premise of your question, uh, because um, I mean, UKIP uh, probably represents you know, a lot of uh, discontent out there, a lot of it which will not be particularly well articulated. But to the extent that we can see that it stands for two things, one is that it wants to leave the European Union. David Cameron doesn't want to leave the European Union. Secondly, that it wants to stop immigration. David Cameron doesn't want to stop immigration. So for people who have decided at the moment that they're going to support UKIP, David Cameron cannot compete with what UKIP is saying to their audience. So by talking all the time, particularly about immigration, it seems to me all you do is raise the salience of the issues on which UKIP feels itself to be most strong. And you can see the result, it seems to me, in the opinion polls, which is that UKIP has got stronger and stronger during this period. Now, there are other issues that the Conservatives could talk about. They could talk about the economy, where they enjoy a 20-point lead over the Labour Party, and on which I don't think UKIP's got very much to say, or not very much anyway that is um, plausible. But when, I, <laughs> uh, when I talk to ministers about this, I, I should say I don't talk to ministers very much these days. I don't have much contact with them. But it so happens that in the recent past, I've seen a few of them, because I was at a conference with them. And when I say to them, don't talk about immigration anymore, they say, you simply don't understand. By the way, the outsider, I do sympathise with them in this, the outsider doesn't understand. But they say, you don't understand. Every single uh, focus group is obsessed with immigration. When we meet our constituents, you can't get them off the subject of immigration. We have no alternative but to talk about immigration. That's where they are. So, how so not, not a Conservative follow, uh, leadership, but a followership. How does... How should the Conservatives deal with, with the issue of immigration then? Do you think they should be better at communica communicating the positives of it? Well, I think the first thing they should decide is what they think about it. Um, <laughs> I, wa no, I watched a presentation by a government minister the other day, and he mused, he said, now these are the figures for immigration, uh, whether good or bad. And having said himself the rhetorical question, <laughs> I thought he was building up to answering it. But no, no. The rhetorical question was left hanging in the air as to whether it was good or bad. So, I mean, seriously, you know, why not decide, have a, what's the word? Have a policy. Uh, uh, so, you know, my view is that a certain level of immigration is necessary because we've got an ageing population. We need lots of young people to come in who are going to be good at generating tax income, who are probably going to have more children than the average, and their children, because they're, the nature of the immigrants, they're going to make sure their children are kind of well-educated. And so, you know, the whole thing will go on. Now, I don't know what that number is, but you could decide what you thought that number was, and then you could argue for that number. Uh, and then you'd have a reason for saying either that, you know, immigration is a bit too high or far too high or whatever. But, you know, decide what your policy is. I, I saw an opinion poll the other day that said that 60% of the population thinks that immigration is a bad thing. Well, how come it isn't 100% since nobody is arguing for immigration? I mean, it seems to be s stunning that there are 40% of people out there who either think it's a good thing or, or don't have any opinion about it when nobody in Britain has made the argument for immigration. It does seem rather odd that, it, a certain, as you say, a certain amount of immigration is, is actually a good, sound conservative 
certainly capitalist philosophy. And Boris Johnson, I've heard, defend it, or read Boris Johnson defend it in The Telegraph from time to time, um, in English. Uh, but That would have right, been his position when he was London mayor. We'll see what his position is when uh, he's Member of Parliament for Uxbridge and when he's running for the Conservative leadership. Do you think he'd be, do you think he'd be a good Conservative leader? Gosh, you've moved to that one, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he would be a very populist um, Conservative leader. <laughs> do you think he'd be effective? Very effective populist. <laughs> Is there, I mean, how, how real is the, the chance that Boris could end up as either leader of the Conservative Party or then indeed Prime Minister, do you think? No, I don't want to scare your audience. We're having a pleasant <laughs> evening. <laughs> but, but the chance of it is very, very real. How do people feel about that? Do people think that's a good thing? No. Let me tell you, but I mean, you know, I... <laughs> The great danger of me talking about these things is I'm entirely an outsider now. You know, I haven't, I, I haven't set foot in the House of Commons for years. But, as I recall, the system of um, electing a leader in the Conservative Party works as follows, which is that you ballot amongst the members of Parliament until you come down to the last two names, the one that comes first and second in the ballot. Then you put those names out to the Conservative membership in the country. Now, even if quite a lot of Conservative MPs uh, may not like Boris Johnson, I don't know whether they do or don't, but let's say that some of them don't. But they will be thinking principally about how they can hold their seats. And, you know, Boris seems to be a popular fellow as well as being a populist. Uh, so, you know, it seems to me that very large numbers of them will say, well, whatever I think of Boris, he's the one who's most likely to hold my seat. So I'd be amazed if he didn't come in the first two. Uh, and once you put the two names out to the party in the country, well, I'd be astonished if he wasn't chosen as leader. That's I'm just applying sort of basic logic to this. We were talking about this the other night uh, uh, amongst political friends about who the Labour candidate for London Mayor might be, and people were talking mm. about Tessa Jowell, Sadiq Khan, David Lammy perhaps. And then someone said, well, who's the Conservative candidate going to be? And I was with Ian Dale, the, the Conservative blogger, and he said, I've got no idea. And I can't think of any Conservative at the moment. I mean, who would, who would the... I mean, you're still involved in Conservative circles to some extent. Who would good Conservative candidates be, do you think, for London Mayor after Boris? I'm not really involved in Conservative circles, and I haven't thought about that question, and I don't know what the answer is. So I, I won't waste your time with that. <laughs> I mean, would, would you consider it? No. Why not? Because I love what I do now. Can I talk about what I do now? I, <laughs> Now, I, I make documentaries now, and I love doing that, and I would never be, I would never be drawn back from that again. You, I mean, some of the documentaries, that, my favourite one you made was about the death penalty in America. Oh, yeah. Um, that I thought was the bit where you deprive yourself of oxygen. Ah, that's what you liked about it. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I could... You were hoping for a better result, weren't you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Your finger was on the red interactive button. <laughs> Do we kill him or don't we? But it was, it was, uh, it was incredible because when I was growing up, I grew up in the 90s, late 80s and, and 90s, and uh, the view of the... You're not wearing so well. Oh, God. <laughs> you can't have grown up in the 90s. I've got 90s. some big questions here. You, can't have, want... you can't have grown up in the 90s, can you? I'm 31. Oh, well, you kind of grew up in the 90s. I take that back, I'm sorry. OK. <laughs> Why? How old do you think I look? No, no, you're 31, actually. 31. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anyone look more 31 than you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
the epitome of 31. I don't know whether that's a compliment or not, but it sounded so good. <laughs> Can I put that on my posters, please? Um, in the area that I grew up in, the, the, the Conservative Party in the area that I grew up in was, was very controversial, was, was not liked. Uh, and um, your reputation at the time was was severe. I mean, the, the, you know, the SAS speech and all that sort of thing. And, and in 1997, I remember you saying that um, your name will always be synonymous with eating a bucket of shit in public uh, as a result of the, the almost, um, well, the totemic loss of your seat in 97. When you're in the middle of a, of a government like that, when, it's, when public opinion is so divided, how aware of you, how aware of your reputation are you as a, as a top-level politician in the middle of storms like that? Um... Before 1997, I think not particularly aware of it, uh, we were so busy. No, we were so busy fighting each other. Um, and this, you know, this is the story of the Conservative Party. The thing that mattered to us on both sides of the question was Europe. And so, you know, every day we got up and thought, you know, we have to, you know, if you were Ken Clark, you thought, we have to keep the show on the road, we have to keep alive the possibility of being in the exchange rate mechanism and going into the single currency. And if you're Michael Portillo or Peter Lilly or John Redwood, you thought, you know, we have to stop this thing in its tracks. And that obsessed that government um, and, you know, led to its breakup in all sorts of ways. But, I mean, it's one, one example of that. On the day when we were bumped out of the exchange rate mechanism, you may remember that uh, the Prime Minister, John Major, called a meeting where he not only met his Chancellor of the Czech and Norman Lamont, but he also met... Michael Heseltine and Ken Clark. Yeah. Interesting composition because, of course, those two were very, very pro-European. And that forum, this would not have happened if you'd met Lamont only, that forum decided that interest rates could rise to 15% that day from 10%. In other words, the signal to the uh, electorate was this matter is of such dogmatic importance to the government that we don't mind putting up your mortgage by 50% in a day. Mm. Once that had happened, we had no chance of winning the next election. But, I mean, that just gives you an idea of the dogmatic frame of mind that we were in. And at the time, I, I'm not, so I would struggle to say whether you were Eurosceptic now. I mean, at the time you were leading Eurosceptic. Now oh, no, do, I am. I am. I am do you think we should leave the European Union? Um, funnily enough, I don't. I mean, I think, it's, I think the thing has moved on so that what really matters now is the Eurozone and not the penumbra of Europe that we are part of. So, for example, when I think about the things that we debate in British politics, you know, like education or health service or policing or uh, welfare, um, I struggle to see, actually, how our sovereignty as a nation in those very important areas is compromised. And so, although I have a general worry about British sovereignty in the European Union. Actually, on a day-to-day -day basis, it seems to me that our sovereignty mainly is not compromised. I think to be in the euro would be a disaster. Mm. I don't want there to be a referendum. If there were a referendum, at the moment, I would vote to leave. Why? Because I think the consequence of a vote to stay in the European Union would be taken by the establishment as a kind of affirmation that we had settled on our European destiny. And that, I think, could be disastrous, because I think the whole thing about going into the euro would be reopened in a way that otherwise it could not possibly be. And you think that would outweigh the risks of... And there's a lot of... There seems that there's certainly cricket applause for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if not football. Uh, Well, it is, but, if you're, but what you're saying is if there was a referendum, you actually would, would vote to leave if it was soon. Would you, would, so yes, for you, if, the, if there were a referendum, I would vote to leave. That's right. I hope there won't be a referendum. 
And what do you, I mean, in, in terms of what, it's so hard to work the risks to the British economy of leaving, but obviously what Ken Clark would say was that it would be disastrous because we would leave that free trade area and we would now face tariffs with our greatest export market. But, I mean, those risks are real, aren't they? Uh, if there is a campaign, there's no doubt that most of it will be like the Scottish campaign. That, that is to say, it will, be, it, will be an att- <laughs> it will be an attempt to scare people into voting in a particular way. Yeah. On both now, sides? Yeah, probably. So there'll be, there'll, be enormous, there'll be enormous scare stories. Personally, I rather doubt whether the British economy would find itself in much of a different position uh, in or out. And there are economies in Europe, and there are certainly economies around the world, which have a perfectly good and thoroughgoing and energetic uh, and prosperous trading relationship with the European Union without being members of the European Union. I mean, there's this, there is this kind of idea that if you leave the European Union, you're not allowed to trade with France anymore. I mean... You know, United, the United States doesn't find itself in that position. Sweden, no, sorry, not, not Sweden. Norway doesn't find itself in that position. Switzerland doesn't find itself in that position. I just wonder then, if the referendum campaign ever came about, would you, would you share a platform with Farage in campaign to leave? No, no I'm, not, I'm not going to do any campaigning. I, I, I shouldn't really do interviews like this because I am now... <laughs> I am a friendly neighbourhood presenter <laughs> travel programmes. Uh, I, am, I am on my way to being a national treasure. <laughs> and, and, and the only thing, the only thing that can stop me achieving that goal is doing some damn fool interview like this with you. <laughs> I don't think it's the only thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What do you make of Farage then? Because the thing is, I disagree with most of what he says, but I love him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, <laughs> no, he is, you know, he is, he is charismatic. He's got the, the pint and the cigarette thing going well. He argues well. I've been on lots of television programmes with him, and, you know, he argues his case well. It seems to me that he's one of these people who has a certain Teflon coating. He shuggle, sh- shuffles off, shuffles off. The, um, the absurdity. Well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he shuffles off the absurdities of many of his uh, supporters. He never goes too near that precipice that most right-wing parties go too near, the precipice of racism. He never gets too near to that. It is it's quite a class act. And without being really a man of the people, I mean, you, you know, this is not a man of a tremendous sort of working-class proletarian background. Nonetheless, he has very, very broad appeal which nowadays is quite unusual amongst politicians. It is. I mean, he's, he describes himself as a Thatcherite, and he was a member of the Conservative Party at the time when you were uh, a member of Parliament for the Conservative Party in those Thatcherite years. If, if Margaret Thatcher was still with us today, how do you think she would deal with UKIP if she was leader of the Tory party? Um, the, I'll, make a, I'll make a contrast between Margaret Thatcher and uh, David Cameron, which is... <laughs> Partly flattering and partly not. So, um, I I work very closely with Margaret Thatcher, and I work closely enough with her to see many hesitations, inconsistencies, and places where she lacked the courage to go. Now, for example, I was with her in 1981 when there was a miners' strike, and she said, "We must." pay up and settle with the miners straight away because we're not ready for a miners strike. Nobody remembers this anymore. But, you know, at that moment, she looked weak. She didn't reduce the top rate of income tax to 40% until, was it 87 or 88? She didn't deal with the trade union uh, monopoly of work around ports. 
it was a monopoly of the Transport and General Workers Union. She didn't deal with that until 1988. Nine years she'd been in office without dealing with this. So in many ways, she, she, she didn't really deal with welfare or mm. education. So in many ways, this coalition government has been braver in areas of schooling and welfare particularly. It's probably been about as brave as Margaret Thatcher's government on the subject of austerity. The big difference is Margaret Thatcher hid any little inconsistencies underneath an absolutely consistent rhetoric that told you day by day what the government was about. It seemed to say to you, I don't care whether you like me or not. In fact, I know that many of you don't, but you know that I'm going to do what's necessary for the country, and that is why I think you're going to vote me back, because you know I'll do it and you know the other lot won't. This government, despite its uh, consistencies and bravery, does not have this rhetoric Mm. Uh, that, that holds it all together. So that I still find people coming up to me and saying, you know, what's David Cameron about? I say, well, have a look at what the government's doing. That's clear enough, isn't it? But they say, no, no, we don't know what David Cameron's about. So I think what is lacking at the moment is this, this rhetoric, and particularly this challenge to go and say to the country, look, you may, yeah, you may be worried about immigration, you may be worried about Europe, but you know that the fundamental issue is the economy, and you know that we're the only ones you can trust to deal with that. I mean, that's the only way to win, it seems to me. Or, sorry, the, the surest way to win. It's odd with Cameron because when he first ran for the Tory leadership against David Davis and then seized it, he seemed like quite a bold moderniser. He seemed that he was going to be quite risky, almost Blairite in modernising his party. And I always felt in the run-up to, to 2010 that he'd lacked the courage to truly modernise the Tories and as a result wasn't going to win a majority. And I think most people objectively would, would probably agree with that. It feels to me like he had this, you know, he, whatever you think of the big society, it was, a, it, was a, it was a new idea, it was ill thought out, but it represented a new strain of conservative thinking. He was talking about the, uh, the uh, environment a lot, um, he was talking about not banging on about Europe, and all those things have gone, and he's ended up being blown around. I mean, the, I don't know whether you agree with this. My theory is actually if, if the Conservatives would have won a majority, he'd have been a better Prime Minister and a more Liberal Prime Minister, because I think failure to modernise enough has handed control to the right wing of his party that said we tried modernisation, it failed, that's why we're in bed with the Liberals, you need to come back to the heartlands if you want to win the next election. That's very interesting, very, very plausible. Actually, I take precisely the opposite view, which is that I think... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that the government has done much more of what David Cameron wanted to do by virtue of being a coalition because he had permission to do more, by which I mean uh, uh, leading a government which got 60% of the vote at the last election, he's had permission from, let's say, the BBC um, (laughs) that he would not have had if he were a 37% government. Now, I mean that absolutely, um, literally. When Margaret Thatcher was in power, the Labour Party was so weak that the BBC felt it had to offer opposition to a government that was winning election after election with enormous majority. It felt it had this sort of public service obligation. It has not felt that it had that public (laughs) service obligation to oppose a government that had 60% of the votes at the last election. So tough things like, I mean, the austerity programme has been quite tough. Uh, The welfare programme has been quite tough. You know, the changes in schooling and health. These have not been done in the teeth of opposition from, let's say, the BBC, because it has been part of a coalition. And I think otherwise, if he'd had a a small majority Conservative government, he would have been wholly in hock to 30 or 40 Conservative backbenchers, whereas with the majority that he's got with the Liberal Democrats, he's not been wholly in hock to them. So there we are. Those are are two versions. Um, I mean, it's kind of two sides of the moon. I think we're, we're looking at the same sort of reality, but putting it differently. 
I just think that leaders, when they've won, always have that over there. You know, Blair always had that. Whenever the left would prickle, he could always say, we tried it your way, we lost. We tried it my way, we won. And, if, and, and that shuts people up. Cameron can't say that to his backbenchers. Uh, no. And, and the, the first bit of what you said before, I entirely agreed with. In other words, that he flirted with modernisation. Some of it he carried you know, almost to extremes. I mean, the, the legalisation of gay marriage, uh, which was done quite recently offending huge numbers of Conservatives, I thought was absolutely brilliant. I mean, for two reasons, because it was one of these sort of flagship uh, neon sign policies that led people to believe that the Conservative Party had changed. Also, it did open the, up the possibility that gay people would support the Conservative Party. And that's, you know, quite a large chunk of the population and quite important. Now, if only he'd also have found policies that would open up ethnic minorities where the Conservatives have only 16% of the vote, which is, you know, an absolutely appalling uh, position. But he does, and this goes back to the conversation I was having with, you know, Conservative ministers who say they can't do anything about immigration. Somehow, between them, they have taken the view <coughs> that they can't do anything but sing UKIP's tune on, on immigration and Europe. And that was your first question, and a very, very good first question it was. <laughs> I just, I, I wonder what you make of Cameron, the, the sort of, the, the strategist, because it, it feels to me like he's, he's more of a tactician, that he's been blown around, so he said, OK, we'll have a referendum on Europe to try and stem the UKIP tide. That hasn't worked, like you say, it's only added salience to their argument. So now he's having to talk even tougher on immigration. Would it have been not better, he's, he's, in, he's, what he's doing is backing himself into a corner where effectively, if he's not careful, he's going to have to campaign for Britain to leave the EU, and as you say, that's not something he wants. I mean, do you think there's a likelihood that, as a Conservative leader, if he wins the next election, he'll have to campaign for us to leave? Um, I don't foresee a majority Conservative government, uh, and I don't foresee it because we don't have one at the moment, and it's very unusual for there to be a swing to the party in office. I think it's only happened once in my lifetime, between 64 and 66. Yes, but have you heard of a guy called Ed Miliband? <laughs> No, it's a very good point. <laughs> it's a very good point. Now, there are, there are two political laws... David. Playing, oh, no, no. <laughs> there are two political laws playing each other here. Uh, one says that the party in office never increases its share of the vote, and the other law says once the public has made up its mind about a leader of the opposition, he cannot possibly pull out of the nosedive. And this would, you know, this is obviously the Neil Kinnock syndrome, the William Hague syndrome, the Michael Howard syndrome. Um, and so these two laws, which push us in different directions, are playing in opposition. I don't know how they'll play out, but I think they'll play out, probably, by neither party having an overall majority. Now, my point was about the referendum. I don't see how you get a referendum unless you have a majority Conservative government. I don't mm. see how we get a majority Conservative government. So, in fact, the referendum almost becomes irrelevant because there's... Yeah, no I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen, which is why, you know, given the views that I gave you earlier, uh, I'm not having sleepless nights. I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to have a, a referendum. Is it, I mean, supposing the Conservatives were in uh, coalition again, either with a small number of Liberal Democrats, because there will be only a small number, uh, <laughs> or, I mean, or with somebody else, I don't know, possibly with the Scottish Ashes. I mean, who knows what bizarre things may happen. UKIP. I don't think UKIP will have enough seats, but... Okay, I mean, the only, the only case that works is if they're in coalition with UKIP, UKIP would, I suppose, agree to a referendum. <laughs> although, no, no, although I think UKIP don't much want the referendum either. Um, I was on with a UKIP lady the other day. Sorry, I can't remember her name. Suzanne Evans? 
Yeah, I think it was. And it was very clear to me that she was not interested in having the referendum. Why? Because I think she thinks, as David Cameron thinks, as most people think, that the referendum will lead to a confirmation of our staying in the European Union. That's the last thing UKIP wants. So, you know, we thought we had this knockout argument when we were arguing UKIP. Say, oh, you know, a vote for UKIP is a vote against having a referendum. But that's not a, it's not a knockout argument for them. They don't want a referendum. A referendum would settle the whole issue. And then, of course, there's no place for um, UKIP in British politics for this, if the matter has been, been settled. So I wouldn't entirely count on UKIP supporting a referendum. Uh, you, you mentioned William Hague syndrome there. Uh, you, you worked with him at close quarters. You were his shadow chancellor um, in that, that first term in office after you'd come back in in the by-election. Uh, I remember you saying that it was the only unhappy experience of your political life. Uh, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> He's sort of rehabilitated himself in, in public life, hasn't he, William Hague? Um, yes. Has your relationship with him improved since? Yeah, yeah, it, it has. I um, had a very agreeable lunch with him. He's been, you know, very generous and very, very nice. No, I, I agree with that. But, I mean, the problem, I mean, not to put it in personal terms, the problem at the time was what, is, what the Conservative Party is going through today. It was exactly the same. The, the view that we intellectualised that in order to win an election, we would have to move to the centre ground, a view with which he agreed, intellectually speaking, juxtaposed with you know, his press officer running up to him and saying, you know, William, if you make a speech tomorrow saying, uh, come with me and I will give you back your country, I can, get you a, you know, I can get you the Daily Mail headline and I can get you a really strong leading article in the Daily Mail. And so you know, while we intellectualised looking for a kind of 37% position, in other words, trying to attract more people back to the Conservative Party, what we were doing on a day-to-day -day <coughs> basis was following the, the, the core strategy, you know, being content with 30 or 31% of the population voting for us. And that was the strain that we were under at the time. You were a shadow chancellor, and um, Labour made great play at the time, and I remember it vividly, the, the apparent uh, divisions between you both. Um, behind the scenes, when you're in a shadow cabinet with someone that you are politically frustrated with, mm. how does that manifest itself? Um, I think you know, mainly in a fairly civilised discussion of the options. I mean, for, it, it, when I came in as Shadow Chancellor, the Conservative Party had committed itself... I'm sorry, I hope this isn't too detailed, but just give you an example of the things you discussed. The Conservative Party had committed itself to reducing taxes as a proportion of GDP no matter what happened. And when I came in as Shadow Chancellor, this seemed to me so economically illiterate, so completely indefensible. Um, I mean, for example, I mean, funnily enough, the problem was not so much what happened if the economy contracted, but actually what happened if the economy expanded mm. and suddenly all this, you know, uh, income was coming in. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to control it. And if you wanted to pay down some of the deficit, you, you wouldn't want to commit yourself to always reducing taxation as a proportion of GDP. So, you know, it took me a while to unravel this, but, you know, it was extremely uncomfortable if any a policy which I thought was nonsense, and which, I mean, even BBC correspondents knew was nonsense. Um, <laughs> or, for example, because, again, I, th you know, I thought this was the right way that we should go, I was the, um, chancellor, the shadow chancellor who accepted uh, the minimum wage. Yeah. I thought it was, it was... And I think... Um, independence of the Bank of England? And the independence of the Bank of England. You know more about what I did than... <laughs> than <I did. laughs> 
Oh, no, seriously, because, you know, I just think about railways these days. But, um, <laughs> yes. So, so, you know, each of those, each of those was a little bit of a, a battle. But actually, the main problem was, um, the main problem was that I was always being portrayed by the media as being the man who was going to stab William Hague in the back. And all William Hague's advisers believed this. And that did not make for a very easy atmosphere. So would he ever talk to you about this? Would he ever sit you down and go, Michael, I'm hearing rumours? <laughs> no, no, there was no, there was no lack of talk. There was no lack of talk. <laughs> but it, the mood in the shadow cabinet at the time must have been... I mean, after the landslide that Tony Blair came in on in 1997, it must have been... There, there must have been a collective realisation that 2001 was going to be a defeat, or were there people around the table that didn't, no, 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 didn't no. see it that way? No, no, everybody knew that we were not going to win the 2001 general election. And indeed, you haven't asked me about this, but I knew that on the day I lost my seat in 1997, that we weren't going to win the 2001 election. Indeed, I pretty much knew that we weren't going to win the 2005 general election, which is one of the reasons why my defeat was not as painful as some people might think, because I didn't want to put myself in a position of of running for the leadership of a rump party that had no electoral prospect for the next decade. Um, But in 2001, the issue was... Having gone down to 30%, if that's what it was, you know, could we the next time have 34% or 35%? Mm. In other words, by the end of the 2001 election, could an election win in 2005 be plausible? That was what it was about. And the answer to the question was, uh, no. We, um, I think we went from 30% to 31%, did we? I, I mean, my memory is not... Is not perfect, but you know we made almost no advance. So that at the end of the of two, seat, yes. Although I think the percentage is probably what really matters. Yeah. But you know we clearly were not making progress. So at, at the end of the two thousand one election, there was no prospect of winning the two thousand and five, and only a limited prospect of winning the two thousand and ten. Because I mean that's really just the way it works. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything that's why shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online in person and everywhere else sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling it's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want so when you're ready to bring your idea to life power it up with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen How difficult did you find it then when you were Shadow Chancellor and you're having to defend policies? I mean, not just when you're Shadow Chancellor, but when you're bound by the collective responsibility of either Cabinet or Shadow Cabinet, when you're having to publicly champion policies that, deep down, you actually probably don't agree with. 
you spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, a lot, no, seriously, because a political party aim, aims to get about 42, 44% of the vote <clears throat> in order to win an overall majority. Therefore, you are attracting an extraordinarily broad coalition of people. And the only way in which politics can work is once you're in a position of authority, is not by everybody saying what they think about an issue, but to have discipline in which you say what you have agreed to say about things. Now, given the breadth of the coalition, most of the things you say will be different from the things that you believe. But I do not think, I do not think that there is anything uh, unworthy or, or dishonest or dishonourable. Dishonourable is the word I want. There's nothing dishonourable about this. If any of you is running a business or a club or an association, the people who run it cannot all have their own opinion. They have to agree on things that they're agreed to say. It, it, you can't run anything otherwise. So there's nothing dishonourable. So you get used to saying things that you don't believe but which you've agreed with others to say. It becomes serious if it is on your own issue. So if you're the shadow chancellor and you're trying to defend a policy on taxation which you don't believe in, then, I mean, that's impossible. That's are, impossible. Are there any incidents or particular policies that, that spring to mind where you've had to go out there and maybe defend it on news night or question time? Well, there was this tax guarantee thing. I mean, that, that to me has been the most painful example of my existence because I fretted and fretted and fretted. It took me some weeks to get rid of this wretched issue. And, of course, I was absolutely... Uh, petrified every time I went on television that I was going to be challenged about this horrible issue in which I didn't believe. Um, Sorry, are you any good at opening bottles? You <laughs> can't get the lid off. <laughs> it just keeps rotating, doesn't it? It does keep rotating. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Thank there, you. Must be oh, a, cheers there must be a political <laughs> metaphor in this. <laughs> um, thank you. Cheers. But, but another thing... I. There was, there, was a, there was a thing called the Community Charge, which came to be known as the Poltax. Now... <laughs> don't remind them, mate, Crook. <laughs> no, but I, I, remember, I remember very, very well. The, the thing was introduced in Scotland by Scottish Conservatives who had lost their nerves because they had allowed a revaluation of the rates, which meant that their supporters in Edinburgh and Glasgow, who were in expensive houses that hadn't been revalued for 18 years were suddenly presented with an enormous new tax bill. And they thought, how do we get out of this? Oh, we'll invent a tax that falls on every head. We'll invent a poll tax. And they brought it in, and it was a disaster. And I remember that Michael Forsyth, who was one of the junior ministers in Scotland in those days, came to me and said, you must give us some political cover. You must introduce it in England. I mean, the madness of this, the madness of it. A policy that had already been demonstrated not to work in Scotland... <laughs> was now to be introduced in England. <laughs> and I said to him, I think this is a balmy idea. Uh, and anyway, I said, I can't think of anything less conservative than making a register of the entire British population <laughs> so that they pay this tax. I mean, this is, you know, this is like Caesar. This is like the beginning of, you know, of, the, of the nativity story, isn't it? Make a register <laughs> of all the people. Absolutely bonkers. So Thatcher um, was effectively like Herod. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, you know, having argued my case against introducing this thing, I became the minister for the poll tax. I, I mean, that must have been... Because it was arguably 
the most destructive of all the Conservative policies of the year in terms of the reputation of the government, in terms of the violent reaction on the streets of Britain to it, and yeah, the margin, yeah. the, the running battles with police. I mean, that and the minor strike stand out as the two bit major flashpoints, really, the Thatcher years in terms of their relationship with the public. Yes, although one... The minor strike, um, I think, enabled Britain to move on from a situation where trade unions were able to hold the government to the day to ransom. We moved on from that. That was settled conclusively. In other words, the miners' strike um, was an important moment in British history. The poll tax was just a waste of time. Just a waste of time. Uh, I mean, a, a prime minister was brought down on the issue of local government finance. I mean, if, if you go around the world and they say, oh, you know, we've heard of Mrs. Thatcher now, why exactly was it she fell? Oh, she was brought down by local government finance. I mean, it's mad, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, Alexander the Great was killed by a flea. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing, isn't it? So the poll tax was just a waste of time. But that, in, in a way, did that not embody how detached she'd become? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, now, I have a great theory. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell a story, actually. When... Uh, when I, I first worked for her in 1979, and I was um, briefing her for her press conferences in the 1979 general election. And I was thinking, you know, how do I prepare her for these press conferences? I must make sure that nothing takes her by surprise. So I read the newspapers, listened to the radio, watched television, got all the bad news that I could, put it into a dossier, and presented her with this bad news every morning. And <laughs> this was a suicide mission. Because, you know, her, her reaction was between explosive and thermonuclear. She just sort of went up like a, like a rocket. Although somebody said to me, you know, don't worry, you're doing the right thing because in the intimacy of that little room, you know, Margaret Thatcher can lose her temper in private before then going to the press conference and losing her temper in public. So, yeah, <laughs> but after I'd, done this, after I'd done this for two weeks, she said, she said you're battering me. She said, you're coming here with all this bad news, you're battering me. She said, I'm leader of the opposition, I know, but I need some bucking up as well. It had never struck me how isolated our political leaders, mm-hmm. even before she was prime minister, the isolation, because the people that you see around them who are called political colleagues aren't political colleagues, they are subordinates and they are rivals. And you have to you know, seek reassurance from people outside that circle. And... And then, you know, if you extrapolate that for 11 years, I think the isolation becomes extreme. And part of it, by the way, is that prime ministers deal at a global level. So all the time they're talking to the president of the United States and the president of Russia, and they're dealing with these enormous issues. And then they come back to cabinet and find, the, you know, these second-rate people talking about drainage or, or, <laughs> or local government finance or whatever. And... Of course, you know, they're, they're, they're just in a different league. They can't help it. And so they become isolated. And so absolutely, no longer receiving advice, no longer listening to advice, and no longer being offered advice. Absolutely, the isolation is there. But it was reassuring that she wanted someone to give her bad news. I think that's always a mark of a good leader, is people who surround themselves with people that will, will privately tell them the very worst. I mean, it, later on in her career, did you ever go to her and, if you had concerns, tell them to her face? Well, I mean, whether you took her bad news or good news, you might easily get an earful. Uh, and I mean, I, I responded well to this. I thought it wasn't a bad leadership technique because it kept you on your toes. I, you know, if I went to a meeting with Margaret Thatcher, I mugged up for hours before. I made sure I knew everything about the subject. 
when you got there, what would happen is she would ask you some question out of left field to which you could po not possibly know the answer. <laughs> and then when you didn't know the answer, she'd say, well, how can we possibly proceed with this policy when you don't even know that? <laughs> so it was very frustrating, but I, didn't find, but, but I didn't find it frustrating. But I mean, people like Ken Clark and Jeffrey Howe, they found it very frustrating. And this is part of what uh, brought her down, this personal frustration. But I, you know, I found it just kind of... Um, uh, rather stimulating. Sorry, I've gone off the... What was your question a moment ago? Uh, did you ever tell her your concerns? Did I ever about... say, So whatever you said to her, whether it was good news or bad news, you were in great danger of being shouted at. But it was still, it was still worth doing. I remember once, there was, there was a little group of junior ministers called the No Turning Back group. But it went beyond junior ministers, but most of us had become junior ministers. And we had an idea about reform of schooling, which is essentially what has happened since. The um, academy, the academies now, but were they were they called were they called grant maintained schools under the last Conservative government? You know, anyway, that idea of giving greater independence to the schools and freeing them from local authority control. We took this idea to Margaret Thatcher, and she told us to grow up. <laughs> she thought our idea was politically naive; that it was you know it was absolutely unwearable, undoable. Now, we rather appreciated being told to grow up in the sense that. You know, we felt we were getting a sort of masterclass in political reality. On the other hand, what actually happened was she absorbed what we had said and a couple of years later, or maybe it was only a year later, came back with, no, with a development of the idea. So, uh, I mean, I think, this was a, I think this was a very productive sort of creative tension, but, but, but not everybody appreciated it as much. Did she ever have... Um Moments of fragility or uh, moments of weakness in private, would she ever show her concern about maybe her reputation or the pressures of the job? Um, I wasn't with her consistently through the time that she was Prime Minister. I, I, I was never in a senior position when she was Prime Minister. I was only ever a Minister of State. That's as far as I got. Um, I saw her on the day that she resigned, and um, I'm happy to tell you that story. I mean, the, of course, I mean, as everybody knows, because they saw her leaving Downing Street for the last time. By that time, she was extremely fragile. She was extremely shocked at uh, losing the premiership. But I, but I will tell you my story, which is that um, being challenged by Michael Heseltine for the leadership, uh, she found humiliating. She, she had an absolute contempt for Michael Heseltine, whom she, found, whom she found showy. Do you understand that contempt? Actually, I like Michael very much indeed. Um, but... And the contempt which she felt was a great weakness, as I'm about to demonstrate, because the only way she could deal with the contempt and the contempt she felt for the challenge was to pretend that it wasn't happening, mm. to rise above it, to be supremely prime ministerial. So while the, a, a short campaign raged in the Palace of Westminster, because, of course, only members of Parliament had to vote for the leader in those days, she was entirely absent. So the Friday she was in Northern Ireland, uh, Monday and Tuesday she was in Paris at a global summit, Tuesday, the vote occurs in her absence. She doesn't get enough votes to win. She comes back on Wednesday morning. She sees each of the cabinet in turn. They each tell her that the game's up and she's got to resign. I get in to see her that evening. Um, she's decided she's going to go, and, and she is in a very delicate state. And I tell her to go on. And she says, I don't understand why you would say that when the cabinet's told me to go. 
And I said, because you haven't spoken to a single elector in this election. You have not mm. canvassed one of them. You haven't picked up a telephone to a single one of them. And I believe that even at this late stage, if you invite them in one by one to the room and got them to look you in the eye and tell you they're going to vote against you, half of them would be taken out of this room in tears. And the look I saw on her face, the look told me she'd never even thought of this. This election-winning machine, yeah. she had never thought of having a proper campaign in which she was involved to save the leadership. Now, that, that is my demonstration of how out of touch she had uh, become. And, and so my point about Michael Hes- you know, her contempt for Michael Heseltine, I mean, that was a big failing, because if she hadn't felt that contempt, she would have, you know, reasoned, you know, I can't go to the Northern Ireland on Friday. I have to spend the entire day manning the telephones. I've got to save my job. In a bizarre way, when it all kicks off like that, when it's all like the, the chaos of it and the drama of it, and it's so vivid... Um, like Geoffrey Howe's resignation speech, for instance. Is there a part of you, even though you're probably sat there thinking, oh, my God, the government I care about is about to crumble around my ears, is there any element of it that you actually find almost perversely exciting? Oh, of course. <laughs> no, no, of course. No, of course. I mean, to be in those places at those times, I mean, that's why, that's why people... Um, why particularly I think they stay in politics. Um, because... I'm trying to think. Um, Sir Peter Tapsell, I think, is presently the leader of the House. And I said to him years ago, perhaps not a very polite thing to say, but you know, I said, why are you still here? Why are you staying? And he said, because I have a ticket in the greatest auditorium in the world, and I'm not going to give up my ticket. To, to see these things happen, of course, the excitement is extraordinary. And by the way, even the people most affected very often feel the excitement. Um, you see, I think Tony Blair was enormously stimulated by the risks that he took in politics. Mm. Uh, but even Margaret Thatcher, there was, a, there was an occasion when she did make it, when she did survive, which was over Westland. It was over Westland. There was a great debate. Kinnock was going to make his speech. Um, she said, I don't know whether I'll be Prime Minister this evening. And indeed, you know, there was a big question mark as to whether she would. And what happened, and I'm not being mean here, what happened, it's one of these parliamentary things... Kinnock made a lousy speech. And we all just sat back and thought, God, that's it. The crisis is over. She's home free. And she was. She was home free because it's, it's, it's this kind of medieval ordeal, uh, not quite by water. Uh, you know, it's not quite like the, the, the dipping stool that they put the witches in. But it is, a, it is a sort of medieval ordeal in which the survival of the prime minister is decided by rules that you can't define. Mm. Uh, she either did survive or she didn't survive, and everybody's clear about it. So that day, and you could see the, the absolute adrenaline and the exhilaration. I remember being with um, uh, Cecil Parkinson. I worked for him before I became a member of Parliament, and it's going back ages, but he was involved um, in... Uh, a number of relationships. He was involved. <laughs> <laughs> he was involved in a relationship which caused him eventually to resign. But... I went up as his special advisor with him and with his wife, Anne, to the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool. And it looked like he was hanging on. And he was going to make a speech at the Conservative Party conference and we'd see how that went and so on. And I remember going into the hall in Blackpool and encountering, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, hundreds of television cameras and thousands of flashbulbs. You couldn't see a yard in front of you. And feeling quite exhilarated myself, but also, I think, I don't think I'm being unfair, noticing that the Parkinson's were quite exhilarated. 
I mean, it is a very, very curious thing. But the horror of it all is quite exhilarating. And, you know, at that moment, too, we thought he was going to make it. We thought he was going to survive. So I suppose that was exhilarating. So no, no doubt at all. And I very often, I used to talk to journalists and they would, you know, comment on crises. And I would sometimes say to journalists, um, if you knew, if you knew, you would give your whole career for 10 minutes of what the Prime Minister is experiencing at the moment. Mm. You may think it's horrible. You may think it is, you know, the tensest, most stressful situation you've been in. But I tell you, it is so exciting. You would give your whole career for 10 minutes of that. So, um, on the 1st of May 1997, uh, (laughs) when you find yourself in the middle of your own storm, if you like, uh, not a a scandal by any means, but... uh, a huge drama that was unfolding across the country. Uh, during that day, or during the campaign first, was that, did it ever cross your mind that you thought you might lose your seat that night? Um, it crossed my mind very firmly on the Sunday before polling day. There was um, a poll that was done specifically in my constituency, which gave me only a 3% lead over Labour. And there was a very substantial Liberal Democrat vote. So clearly, you know, the, the, the signal to swing voters was, if you want to get rid of Portillo, Liberal Democrats switch to Labour and you can do it. And of course, um, leaflets went out saying precisely that. So from Sunday, I was completely prepared to lose my seat. And on the Wednesday, polling day is on Thursday, remember? On Wednesday, I was travelling on a train with a journalist and he said to me, if by any chance you lost tomorrow, what would you hope for? And I said to him, I would hope to lose with dignity. So I was already kind of rehearsing the whole thing. Then um, I, I went on, um, on the Thursday night when the polls closed, I went on the election broadcast. I was on with Neil Kinnock and um, Jer- Jeremy Paxman. Sorry. <laughs> How could I forget Jeremy Paxman? <laughs> uh, I was on with Neil Kinnock and Jeremy Paxman. And there was um, an exit poll. And they suddenly started saying, ah, on this exit poll, Michael Howard might lose his seat. I don't know why they started thinking about Michael Howard. I knew that I had lost my seat on that exit poll. And I'm waiting there for Jeremy Patsman to ask me if I've lost my seat. And I get through the entire interview, and it doesn't occur to him <laughs> that I've lost my seat. But I got into the car with um, my wife and my team, and I said, OK, I want you to know we've lost. And they said, no, 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 no. I said, no. On those numbers, we have lost. And so we drove off to the constituency, and then you know, the agent called me and said, you've lost. So plenty of time to, plenty of time to prepare. Uh, the, the worst thing was that there were three um, constituencies in the borough of Enfield, and the returning officer decided that he wanted all three counts to be finished simultaneously. So we had to wait for one of them, where I think there was a question of someone losing the deposit or something. So we had to wait hours with all the television cameras looking oh. at us, um, you know, pretending that we didn't know what the result was. Um, but I developed a certain graveyard humour. I mean, for example, when I arrived at the count, knowing what the result was already, I met Stephen Tweak, the man who beat me. And he looked shattered. I mean, he was shattered, poor fellow, because, I mean, you know, he had a life and a career and everything else. He'd stood as a candidate, had no prospect of being elected at all. Suddenly, he was going to be a member of parliament. He was, he was completely shattered. So I, I slapped him on the shoulder and I said, you know, pull yourself together, Stephen. It's not that bad. And then, before the result is announced uh, publicly, uh, the returning officer gets all the candidates into a huddle. And he says, this is the result I propose to announce. And you need to, you know, you need to, be, you need to be aware of it. And at the end of it, he said, right, you know, read out all the numbers. 
And he said, everybody happy? <laughs> I said, ecstatically. <laughs> and off we went. Did you, did, does any, because I've worked for politicians, but I've never stood for office before, and it, mm. it's always struck me how personal the rejection must feel, even though you know uh, it's a national landslide, you know, particularly in 97, it was a phenomenon, really, of an election. Did any part of you feel it personally? Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go over the top about that. I mean, possibly, if anything, I was slow to realise the personal element of it. Because as I told you uh, in a previous answer, you know, we were obsessed about what we were up to. I mean, quite apart from my ministerial job, which was very absorbing because I was Secretary of State for Defence. So I hadn't kind of lingered on how personally unpopular I might be. And I think, <laughs> and I think that did take a while to sink in. So I can't say, you, you know, your audience probably be very disappointed about this. I can't say that I suffered this, you know, huge humiliation from which I had to recover. Uh, in fact, I felt a bit of a sense of relief I've already indicated this, mm. the fact that I didn't have to run for the Conservative leadership, the fact that I wasn't going to be part of this rump of 165 Tory members who were clearly going to have a miserable time, at least for five years, if not for 10 or 15 years, you know, all of that was actually um, quite uh, a relief. Um, it's funny the things that were tricky. Um, getting on a bus, getting on a tube, standing in a sandwich queue, uh, not because I... You know, objected to getting on a bus or a tube or a sandwich queue, but just the feeling that everybody m- must be looking at you. Yeah. And sort of... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that was just the driver. <laughs> yeah. No, no, not just the driver. Did, um, did you ever get any abuse in the street or anything like that? Did it ever get, you know, during poll tax or the minor strike or in the 97 campaign? Do you know, hardly any at all. And on that Wednesday, when I spoke to that journalist about, you know, what it would be like to lose the next day, it was so misleading because I, I was going around a constitu- I was going around Taunton constituency, which we also lost. And Neil Hamilton, it, wasn't it? Everybody, Taunton. Oh no, no, no that's Hatton. No, that's no, right. Taunton. <laughs> um, Who was the MP there? I think it was David Nicholson, wasn't it? I think it was David Nicholson. Um, anyway, I was going around there and sort of, you know, people rush over and say hello. Now, I mean, this is a problem for politicians actually because because you have a certain celebrity status. Uh, People are self-selecting, you know, if they, if they think it's, if they like you, or even if they just think it's amusing to be with someone that they recognise from the television, they'll come rushing over <laughs> with a smile. You have to understand after a while that this tells you nothing about their voting intentions whatsoever. <laughs> but, you know, wherever you go, you're surrounded by smiling, smiling people. And on the whole, the people who don't like you keep their distance. I mean, there are very rarely exceptions to this. I mean, of course... You know, I've been slapped with an egg in Liverpool and a couple of things like that. Um, but it's, but, but it, is, it is very, very rare. One of them was quite recently, actually. I was filming in, was filming in the East End of London, and a man came up to me and said, Oh, Mr. Portillo, he said, Mr. Portillo, your father was such a wonderful man. I said, Oh, that's so nice of you. He said, Yes, he must have been so disappointed in you. <laughs> We, we talked about leaders earlier and how isolating it is for, for leaders to go through you know, election defeats and all the things that uh, isolate them as individuals. But leadership was something that you, that you wanted and that you stood for um, to mm. be... Those two things are different. To, what, you stood for it but you didn't want it? I think that's pretty much true. Actually. Really? Yeah. But you felt pressured into doing it? Yeah. Who by? Well, to, to wind back for a moment... I had, um, I had not stood in 1995. Uh, in 1995, 
I'll tell you how this went as well. My pager went off. We had pagers in those days. And uh, I was making a speech at lunchtime, and the pager goes off and it says, come to see the Prime Minister at once. So I go to 10 Downing Street. Prime Minister greets me. We sit down at the cabinet table, just the two of us, nobody else in the room. He says, Michael, I've decided to resign the leadership of the Conservative Party and to stand again for re-election. You have that long to decide whether to say, well, I'm going to run against you, or whether to say, good luck, Prime Minister. In those two seconds, I heard myself say, good luck, Prime Minister. <laughs> Partly entirely rational, because I thought anybody who brings down a Conservative leader will not be elected leader. He who wields the dagger shall not wear the crown. Uh, and that, you know, what might happen would be there might be, he might be knocked out by somebody else, there might be another round of voting, that would be the time to put your name into that. Anyway, you know, not the most glorious moment of my political career by any means. However, fast forwarding to 2001, uh, now, bewitched by this thought that I had hesitated in 1995, that I must not hesitate, I'm assured by a group of people around me that if I stand for the leadership, there won't even be an election. It'll be by acclamation. Did you fall for that? Did you? I somewhat fell for it, you see. And so I, I declare, uh, nobody else declares for two weeks. I'm in the field on my own for two weeks, <laughs> hanging there Should like a parliament. target being shot at, <laughs> because there's no one else to shoot at. So um, I remember the voting reasonably well. In the first round, I'm way ahead yep. with 50 votes. In the second round, less far ahead, still have 50 votes. In the third round, have 50 votes and come third. That's an astonishing record. Managed to put on no votes whatsoever <laughs> during the entire campaign. With all those people who were switching from other candidates, none of them was attractive to me. So, so it was a, a bit of a disaster. Um, now, the reason I say, you know, didn't much want it. I, had, I did have this big idea about what I wanted to do with the Conservative Party, which was to move it to the centre ground. In order to do that, I thought I would need a huge majority. I would need an absolutely whopping mandate to do that. From quite early on, as this 50 votes was never added to, it was clear to me that I was never going to have a whopping mandate. And to try to do what I wanted to do without a whopping mandate seemed to me very unattractive. So actually, when I didn't get it, I was relieved because I was never anywhere near getting the mandate. The person who won, of course, was Ian Duncan Smith, who also, also had no kind of mandate. Yeah. Because under this, I'm afraid it's a mad system that the Conservatives have, because what it means is that the person who becomes party leader uh, may have got a third or fewer of the votes of the members of Parliament. Yeah. So, you know, Ian Duncan Smith, I think, had 51 votes. I had 50, and Ken Clark had, I think, 57 or 58. So Ian Duncan Smith had fewer than a third of the votes of members of Parliament, and he becomes leader of the Conservative Party with with two-thirds of the members of parliament having voted against him. I mean, how strong a position is that? That makes the Labour leadership selection look actually quite <laughs> rational. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I you mean, want to get the unions involved, mate. The, uh, <laughs> the Conservatives would do very well to, to change their procedure. I mean, at least, at least to have a final moment where all members of parliament are required to vote for the leader or something. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, this is an absolutely loaded question. Well, but how bad... Behind the scenes, was Ian Duncan Smith? Well, really, I don't know, because I dropped out of it altogether. I wasn't in his shadow cabinet. Uh, I was um, 
as far as high politics was concerned, I was completely inactive after 2001. I was just, you know, uh, concerned with my constituency and, um, and moving on into my other life. So I have really no idea. I thought long and hard about asking this question. I don't want you to think that I'm being disrespectful or trying to lead you into talking about anything else. But I remember Ken Clark at the time saying that he thought what cost you the leadership was your admission that in the past you'd had gay relationships. Do you think that's fair? I think, I think Conservative members of Parliament had all sorts of reasons, I mean, some of them, for not liking me, and that will have been the reason for some of them. Do you think the Conservative Party's changed since then? Um, again, I don't really know. Do you know, I, I left Parliament in 2005. I think I'm right in saying that 80% of members of Parliament today were not there when I was there. So I really don't know. In terms of that, that revelation, it was a huge revelation for you to put out there, and intensely private, and I, I think it's wrong that any MP should have to talk about their sexuality or say whether they're homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, whatever. At the time, did you regret making the revelation? Yes. I mean, I, I thought it was entirely the right thing to do at the time because I was you know, into this whole thing about um, you know, modernising the Conservative Party and so on. But the way I was dealt with... I. I mean, led me to regret it. You know, I thought that I would be treated in a rather more mature way by the press than I was. So what, what, what shocked me the most, actually, was, was the reaction of the left. And what, what I felt was, I remember um, Peter Tatchell uh, in that by-election, I felt was, was hounding you for some sort of um, admission. And I, I couldn't believe the behaviour. And even amongst friends I was doing my A-levels at the time, there was sort of this, this idea that we all had a right to know whether you were gay or not. And I just... That must be such a, 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 a horrendous situation to be put in, to have something that's so private. Well, it was, I mean, it was certainly tired. Almost dragged out of you. It was also, well, it wasn't dragged out of me. I mean, I, I said what I said entirely voluntarily to a newspaper journalist. Um, so it wasn't in any sense dragged out of me. I suppose in a way there was a bit of a triumph to it because despite the fact that this had been printed in newspapers, I was selected to be the candidate for... Um, Kensington and Chelsea and then elected as the member of parliament at Kensington and Chelsea and then I became the shadow chancellor so I suppose in a way you know, I did my bit for um, modernisation but I mean I must say now although this is only um, uh, 13 no slightly more than that isn't it although, although this is 15 years ago that I was selected and elected for Kensington and Chelsea it does already seem like a different period of history I mean you can't believe these things now what, in terms of attitudes towards yes. gay people? Yes, yes. And do you think, in terms of the, the Conservative Party changing its... Because, obviously, bringing in gay marriage and things like that, do you think it was forced into that position by a very pro-gay Labour Party? Or do you think, eventually, the Conservatives would have seen the, the sense in not being so effectively homophobic anymore? Um, well, I think this was a very personal decision by David Cameron, and I don't think he was forced into it by the Labour Party. I think he thought it was, as I said before, you know, a way of putting up a neon sign that said the Conservative Party had changed. But also, you have to consider... I mean, those people who have said that he did the wrong thing, you really have to consider what the alternative was. As in one place after another, states of the United States, countries across Europe, um, gay marriage was being legalised, was the British position to be, was the Conservative position to be, again, to hold out against what was clearly going to be an inevitable, unstoppable, global torrent. I mean, what madness to put yourself in that position. Uh, but I'm pleased to say that, you know, he saw that 
Um, obviously, some people in the Conservative Party didn't see it. Some people have been offended by it. But I think, I think it was a, a good example of leadership. And I think it was actually um, very astute politics because he was, he was deciding not to stop the unstoppable. Uh, indeed. Uh, I shall uh, open up the floor to questions now. Uh, we've got about five minutes to questions. So if I can ask people, please, uh, one-sentence questions. And if I can ask Michael as well, uh, one-sentence answers, because I know there'll be plenty of people who want to ask. So can you just have the lights up a sec? Um, just for the benefit of the podcast, I'll have to repeat your name and the uh, question you've asked, which is uh, tiresome, but we'll have to go through it. Yes, the gentleman at the front, what's your name? Um, hello, uh, Callum. Callum. Section 28. Section 28. Oh, we've got a microphone. Lovely. Amazing, thank you. Hello, good evening. Um, Callum Alex, okay. In section 28, you voted against it. Oh, so you voted for it when it first got brought in by Thatcher. Do you not feel like we're a hypocrite? Um, I, I don't feel particularly a hypocrite. I do think it was the wrong thing to do. Okay, um, there was a, I think there was a lady with her hand up around a similar area. Was there any? Oh, no, it was a gentleman, sorry. Um, <laughs> Always, I, 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 no doubt as towards your gender. I thought I'd seen a lady put her hand up as well, but yeah. Hello, um, Howard Piper. <laughs> Did you ever feel during your years as a politician, whoever you were serving or working with, or as a minister of state or higher, that you actually had power? Good That's question. A very, very good question. The answer is broadly no. <laughs> <laughs> but you definitely knew when you didn't have no, it. No, it's, it's, no, I think it's a really good question. You can't, it, nearly, nearly all decisions are collective decisions, and they are a huge struggle. You have to persuade the backbenchers, you have to persuade your cabinet colleagues, you have to persuade the media. Uh, it doesn't feel like power. There are examples of political power. For example... Um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the budget. Um, he has an enormous amount of leeway in framing the budget. And also, I mean, for example, Tony Blair's decision that we should go to war uh, with Iraq is an example of power. I mean, he made his decision. He persuaded everybody that needed to be persuaded. He made an enormous difference. You know, whatever you think, good or bad, it is an example of political power. So I'm not saying... There are no examples of political power, but most of us in politics, our daily experience is something other than power. OK, I'll tell you what we're trying to do, just to make it easier. We're trying to sort of sweep across the room. So has anyone in this uh, section of the room got a question at all? No, that makes it a lot easier. Yes, the, uh, the, the chap there with the glasses. Hi. Um, you, you said that now you're just a documentary maker. Um, mm. Some very fine documentaries there too. Um, uh, but you also said about the excitement of politics, which is something that you spend most of your life doing. So why is it that you um, have moved from one to the other, and how can you stay away from that excitement? Good question. Well, when I described the excitement of politics, I was largely describing the excitement of certain individuals like Tony Blair, like Margaret Thatcher, like David Cameron, who, despite the stress, managed somehow to enjoy it. Um, I would be less positive talking about my own sense of stress when I was at the heart of things. I mean, on the whole, I found it just plain stressful. Um, I did think that when I was in office, the privileges and the joy and the excitement of being in office compensated for the stress. Once I moved into opposition, I just had stress. I didn't have any kind of excitement or fulfilment. And I think the levels of stress that you're willing to take 
at different times of your life, or certainly it has been for me, vary. So the stress I was willing to take in my 40s is not the stress that I'm willing to take now that I have a senior rail card. <laughs> and I've never known anyone look more like they've got a senior rail card. No, exactly. <laughs> 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 it's been like, really interesting yeah, listening yeah. to you. Being a politician, first of all, now a commentator, what do you think about the vote on Friday about the MPs not being allowed to know who the expenses are being investigated? What do you think about that? Sorry, I think I missed, I think I missed this detail. They voted to what? Sorry, on Friday, they're yeah. voting to whether to allow MPs who have been investigated to be released to the public. Um... Expenses. I, sorry, yeah, expenses. no, I, I understand about expenses. And sorry, just one more thing. I think you I look d- like a young Matt Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. That's very good. <laughs> That's very good. Um, I don't think I know enough about precisely what they're voting on to, g- to give you a reasoned opinion on that. Sorry. Okay, other lady at the front. Um, my name's Rachel, and it's fantastic to hear your perspective. But what I'd like to ask you is, what do you think each of the main, and I hate to say it, four parties <laughs> are doing right, and what do you think that each one of them is doing wrong? Okay, well, I think I've probably covered most of this already. Um, I think the, um, the Conservative Party is currently talking about the wrong issues. It should be talking about the economy, and it needs to tell people that even if you don't like the Conservatives, you know that they're the only party that's going to do the right thing on the economy, what needs to be done. Um, the Labour Party, I'm afraid it's doing most things wrong. I mean, I, I, looked, I had to make a speech the other day about Labour Party policy, and I looked at the Labour Party website, and they're so thin on policy, and there's a sort of wish list there about improving standards in education and spending more on the NHS. But, you know, given our present financial state, none of this is credible. And then they have the Ed Miliband uh, issue. So, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're in a very bad way. The Liberal Democrats, I believe the best thing the Liberal Democrats could do, this is very similar to what I said about the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats ought to be arguing for what the coalition has done, why it was necessary, why they've been a responsible party of government, why they should be trusted with government again. Uh, instead, what they're doing is trying to dissociate themselves from the Conservatives, which I think is a, a pointless um, thing to do. And um, UKIP... Uh, I suppose, is doing most things right in its own terms. But, it, of course, it's different than the other parties, in my view, because I don't think it, it, I don't think it um, seeks to offer, nor do people expect it to offer, a broad range of policies for government. Excellent. And a very clever way of asking four questions in one. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, let's, let's move around. Is there anyone in this section here that would like to ask a question? Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, you come across much more reasonably than I remember you <laughs> when you were in politics. Is that because then you were just towing the party line and now you're actually being more genuine? Uh, that, that could easily be the case. Um, I think also uh, it's because I'm, I'm not particularly stressed talking to you today. Um, I think people underestimate how much stress ministers suffer from. And mm. the, the very skillful political operators are those who, despite the stress, still look friendly and approachable. Who <laughs> um, would you say they were? So give us some examples. Well, I mean, David Cameron and Tony Blair are the best two examples of this. 
Um, they still looked incredibly friendly and approachable, even when they were under stress. I, I remember David Cameron, even before he, be, long before he became, oh, actually before he became Conservative Party leader, he did 15 minutes on Newsnight where they were asking him whether he'd taken drugs at university. Well, that is a pretty stressful subject to get into. He looked so relaxed. I, I just took my hand. Oh, he's a kite, wasn't he? <laughs> 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 so I think, I think part, part of my look in those days was that I was under a certain amount of stress and, and certainly when I get stressed I sort of kind of you know, go hunch up and um, you know, peer down my nose at, uh, at the camera how did you, just when you did that, I immediately thought of your spitting image puppet. I mean, how did, did you? Yeah, <laughs> there we are. How did you feel about being caricatured in that way? I was delighted. <laughs> no, I mean, no, sorry. I mean, to be on spitting image, it was such a recognition. Uh, people longed to be, and I was a very junior minister, to have my own puppet on spitting image. Uh, you know, fantastic. Because a lot of people, I know some politicians wanted yeah. versions of themselves. Have you, got, have you got one of the spitting images of you? No, I haven't got it. I, I, I did see it in a studio once, and I tried to obtain it. I think I was represented as a Spanish Caudillo, wasn't I, as a, as a, as a general. But let me um, I, I just, just make a broader point here. This is a very, very big trap in politics. You, you are very keen to be recognised. So when I say, you know, you're delighted to have a spitting image puppet, I, I mean, that is literally true. People wanted to be able to recognise, wanted to have a spitting image puppet. But, of course, you're then pigeonholed. And I don't just mean the spitting image puppet. You know, I developed a reputation as being a figure on the right. And then once that reputation was established... Was that fair? I had portrayed myself that way, so it was fair in that respect. But once it's happened, any information that comes along that reinforces the stereotype is put into the pigeonhole, and any information that doesn't reinforce the stereotype is ignored. Yeah. And so all that happens is that the stereotype gets reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And I think lots of people don't realise this early on enough in their careers, that you can't escape from the first image that you adopt. Not quickly. Not but some do. In Duncan Smith arguably has. Haig has. Yes. You have. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that's right. And all of those are illustrations of how long it takes. Mm, indeed. Um, I'll just have a look. Has anyone on the balcony got a question? If so, can you shout out? Cause the... Balcony? Is there a balcony? Oh, there's a balcony up there, yeah. yeah. Anyone up there? No. N- yeah, not... Empty balcony. Okay, yes? Uh, did you have any idea about what was going on between Major and Curry? <laughs> do you have any idea what's going on between Major and Curry? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> No, did I? Did I? No. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Were you jealous? <laughs> the, follow- the following is the answer to the first question. <laughs> I did not know anything about it, no. I mean. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, with John Major, oddly, when it, this all came out years later, I think in an odd way, people thought. Oh, nice one. It's sort of, it's sort of, but it's sort of, it's sort of, it gave him an edge that he'd never had before. It's sort of odd, isn't it? That you may have noticed I'm not going there. <laughs> OK, right, one last. Who's got the best question? One last question. Uh, yes, the lady down the front. Final question. Gillian Howard. Oh, hold on, Gillian. We'll, we'll get a microphone. See, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> what was your most embarrassing moment in public office? Great question. <laughs> Are you narrowing them down or are you trying no, to No, I'm... 
<laughs> I'm trying to trying to remember. Uh, Can give us a private one if you like. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to come up with anything spectacular. When, when, I, um, when I first became Secretary of State for Defence, um, and I was wearing shoes like these, which have <clears throat> absolutely smooth soles, um, I'd been to a meeting and there were soldiers around, and then I was asked to clamber onto a tank. <laughs> and if you try clambering onto a tank with um, smooth-soled shoes, you, you look very ungainly. I mean, you've got no grip and you're slippering all over the place and then, you know, you look like a wally trying to get onto it and trying to get off it. And so after that, I went down to my shoe shop and I got a pair of, I got a pair of shoes that looked like this on the top so that you could wear them to meetings and had the most fantastic grips on the bottom. So they were kind of outdoor walking shoes on the bottom, but they were um, sort of city shoes on the top. And these I found to be absolutely necessary because you were always going to formal situations and then we asked to clamber on a tank or whatever as Secretary of State of Defence. And so I solved this problem of the embarrassment because, you know, it is very humiliating to look like a wally when you're meant to be the, you know, the, the political chief of the armed forces. Uh, <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for, thanks for coming along. Uh, as always, uh, you've been uh, a phenomenal crowd. All that remains for me to say is a massive thank you, please, for Mr Michael Howard. Yeah. Michael Marcello! Yeah. Oh, shit. That wasn't intentional. Oh, God. I think it'd be better if you said it was. Oh, my God. We've got to do that again. We've got to do that again. I can't. Oh... I know, but just we can't applaud him. So, Mr. Michael Portello. <laughs> well, there you go, Michael Portello, absolute heavyweight legend. Um, the next show is on the 28th of January, um, which is just in a few days' time. And my guest will be UKIP Deputy Leader Paul Nuttall, um, a man who, I have to say, a couple of years ago, um, I didn't think it was up to much. I, I, he has transformed uh, and really grown and is uh, is now, I think, uh, frankly, a major asset to UKIP. But he's very, very funny and he's very genial. And, well, as with all UKIP candidates that, uh, that get interviewed, I'm sure it'll be a good laugh and I'm sure there'll be plenty for us to talk about. Um, do come down. It's the first uh, political show of the new year. Uh, there's a sports party this Monday, the 19th uh, of January, where my guest will be Dean Windass, who's a phenomenal, those of you that are football fans will know, um, played for Bradford and Hull City, he got his hometown club of Hull promoted to the Premier League, um, but has really, really struggled with his demons and talked very openly about uh, how he uh, how he tried to kill himself. Um, so if you're into sport, um, do come to that. The next political one is on the 28th of January, as I say, with Paul Nuttall, the deputy leader of UKIP, a man who was claimed on Wikipedia had played Bungle in Rainbow, but I think that turned out to be false, sadly. Um, probably a more serious role than he occupies now. But the uh, guests for future dates will be announced, some very exciting names uh, that will be announcing in the next few weeks. Thanks very much for downloading this. Um, if you enjoy it, please do tweet about it and share it and tell your mates. And thank you for downloading it. And once again, uh, I can't keep apologising. Um, I'm sorry for how long this has taken to get out. Happy New Year, belatedly, as well. I hope you had a good Christmas. ta -ra.